Welcome to The Green Investor, powered by Investopedia. I'm Caleb Silver, the editor-in-chief of Investopedia and your guide and fellow traveler on our journey into what it means to be a green investor today and where this investing theme is headed in the future. In this episode, COP27 wrapped up in Egypt last weekend with a historic agreement to create a new fund to compensate poor nations for the so-called loss and damage they are experiencing as a result of extreme weather worsened by climate change. We'll get into the details and we'll speak with Alice Hill of the Council on Foreign Relations who attended the gathering about what was and what wasn't accomplished. But first and always, this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. We will not make recommendations to buy, sell, or hold a particular security or asset, although we may discuss financial products with our guests. Some of our guests may invest in the securities mentioned on this podcast. Some of our guests may sell or market securities mentioned on this podcast, but all listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions. Let's do the news. The U.S. and China appear to be working or at least talking about working on climate again. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping said on Saturday that they had resumed formal cooperation, which had been suspended after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan earlier this year. Xi said the two countries are putting forward on the formal negotiating agenda the issue of how to address the losses and damages developing nations are experiencing as a result of climate change, but he stressed that any new deal on the issue should mirror the Paris Agreement by putting the onus on developed countries to contribute. More countries signed up to the methane pledge launched in Glasgow last year, and there are now 150 nations that have pledged to cut emissions of that greenhouse gas by 30% by the end of the decade. China, for its part, said it has developed a draft plan to curb methane emissions, but did not join a global pledge to reduce its output. Other major gas producers still outside the pledge include Russia, Turkmenistan, and India. A new $3 million global methane hub program to track and manage methane emissions from the global waste sector in Africa and Latin America was announced Wednesday at COP27. Temperatures in Europe have a strong chance of being significantly higher this winter. That's according to the European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service. Coastal regions along the Baltic, Mediterranean, and North Sea are almost certain to see temperatures exceeding historical average, and there is a 50 to 60% probability that temperatures will be significantly above historic norms across much of the UK, Central, and Southern Europe. Warmer temperatures might ease the concerns and costs around natural gas this winter, most of which the EU imports from Russia. U.S. greenhouse gas emissions climbed by 4.1% from major industrial sources in 2021, according to new data recently released by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. The increase is the largest yearly increase in emissions in more than a decade of reporting. The 2.7 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent were self-reported to the agency by more than 8,100 of the nation's largest climate polluters under the agency's mandatory greenhouse gas reporting program. Here is a list of the top polluters of the most harmful emissions. Carbon dioxide? That goes to the James H. Miller Jr. power plant in Quinton, Alabama, which is owned by the Southern Company. It is the largest coal-fired power plant in the U.S. in terms of power generation and was also the nation's biggest emitter of CO2 in 2021. The plant emitted 20,834 metric tons of carbon dioxide last year. Company executives announced plans last year to shut down nearly 90% of its coal power capacity by the year 2028, on the way to having net zero emissions by the year 2050. The planned shutdowns do not include the James H. Miller plant. 
about methane? Well, that goes to the Bailey Mine, a coal mine owned by Console Energy in southwestern Pennsylvania, and it is the largest single source of methane in the United States with 90,743 tons of methane emissions in 2021. That's roughly equivalent to the annual greenhouse gas emissions of 1.6 million automobiles, according to the EPA. Console Energy does capture and destroy some additional methane emissions from the mine as part of a methane destruction pilot program. Nitrous oxide, well, that goes to Ascend's Performance Materials, a nylon plant in Cantonment, Florida, which released 24,657 metric tons of nitrous oxide in 2021. That's four times more nitrous oxide than any other industrial facility in the country, according to the EPA. The plant makes adipic acid, a main ingredient in Nylon 6.6, a strong, durable plastic used in everything from stockings to carpeting, seatbelts, and airbags, and also emits large amounts of nitrous oxide, a pretty dangerous byproduct. Nitrous oxide is 273 times worse for the climate than carbon dioxide on a pound-for-pound basis. Hydrofluorocarbons, that goes to chemical manufacturer Chemors, which vented 180 metric tons of HFC-23 from its Louisville, Kentucky plant in 2021. HFC-23 is 14,600 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide on a pound-for-pound basis, making it one of the worst climate pollutants ever identified by the scientists with the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The emissions, which can be destroyed through incineration, are equal to the annual emissions of 566,000 automobiles. Sulfur hexafluoride? Well, in 2021, American Electric Power released 18 tons of FS6 from electric utility substations across 10 states, which are emissions equal to the annual greenhouse gas emissions of 99,000 automobiles. SF6 is 25,200 times worse for the climate than carbon dioxide, making it the most potent greenhouse gas ever assessed by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Once released, FS6 remains in the atmosphere warming the planet for 3,200 years. The two-week-long COP27 climate summit that took place in Egypt's Red Sea resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh wrapped up in the early dawn hours last Sunday with a historic agreement to create a new fund to compensate poor nations for the loss and damage they have suffered due to climate catastrophes. Government ministers and negotiators from 200 countries finally secured that agreement after talks nearly collapsed on Friday, the final scheduled day of the summit, and they also reaffirmed efforts to limit global temperature rise to the crucial temperature threshold of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Here are some of the particulars of that agreement. Number one, a new fund for loss and damage. Under the agreement, the nations decided to establish new funding arrangements for assisting developing countries that are particularly vulnerable to the adverse effects of climate change in responding to, quote, loss and damage, end quote. That includes a focus on providing and assisting in mobilizing new and additional resources which are meant to complement existing programs and funds. No sums of money were actually committed at the summit, and the rules of how the fund would work were left to be decided at next year's COP28 summit in the United Arab Emirates. Number two, potential changes coming to multilateral lenders. For the first time, a COP meeting included a call to reform the global financial architecture so that it better aligns with climate goals, as reported by Bloomberg. The idea is to amend the mandates of multilateral development banks like the World Bank and international financial institutions, such as the International Monetary Fund, to ensure that greater financing flows to energy transition projects and efforts to adapt a warming planet. Three, mitigation work programs. This is one of the big sticking points of COP27, and it is centered around ensuring that countries set clear targets, plans, and metrics to reduce emissions on pace to meet climate goals. So far, commitments have not followed the same standard, with countries using different criteria and baselines for their targets. Without a common system, those pledges may not turn into actual emissions reductions, but no agreement was reached on those programs or a timetable for making changes. 
Number four, strengthening rules for carbon markets. At COP27, negotiators outlined a more detailed framework for how a carbon market would work, including allowing corporations to buy credits from governments. Again, no new rules or policies were put in place, but the discussion is at least ongoing. And number five, that 1.5 degrees Celsius goal remains a long shot. There were no new targets set for reducing global warming beyond the 1.5 degrees Celsius warming target that was agreed upon in the 2015 Paris Agreement. Please to phase out all fossil fuels and to peak global emissions by the year 2025, which is likely to happen anyway, according to the IEA, were rejected by many nations who export oil. As another conference of the parties comes to a close, member nations, NGOs, companies, grassroots organizations, investors, and other interested parties leave Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, with many unanswered questions. Who's going to pay for climate disasters? Who's going to pay to prevent future disasters? Who's going to pay for investments needed to slow and hopefully reduce global warming? It always comes down to money, which is why progress seems so slow, even as the urgency around climate change becomes even more intense. Alice Hill is the David M. Rubenstein Senior Fellow for Energy and the Environment at the Council on Foreign Relations. She focuses on the risks, consequences, and responses associated with climate change, and she is our special guest on The Green Investor this week. Thank you for being here, Alice. Oh, great to join you. Thank you. You're just back from Egypt. You are at COP27. You and I are speaking on a Friday. They're going to go through the weekend having conversations about funding facilities to pay for a lot of this. But that really was the dominant theme. Give us your your brief takeaways from the time you spent there and what was really happening. Well, yes, the COP should have ended by now, but it's not because the fight is, as you've noted, over money. And that will be the continuing theme since we've seen from our windows climate change impacts unfold. And we know that it will take a lot of money to transition to clean energy and cut our harmful greenhouse gas emissions, plus prepare for these worsening climate impacts. That was very obvious during my stay in Sharm el-Sheikh. You know, Sharm el-Sheikh is a resort town on the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. It just is strung with water parks and, and seemingly countless pools as you fly in, but very dry area. So, Ironic that that is the choice of places to be, given the challenges that climate change brings with too much or too little water. And some 30,000 delegates from over 190 nations, as well as NGOs and other observers like me, joined at the COP. This was a bit of a stretch for the Egyptian government to put this on. There were certainly lots of complaints about Everything from the food, inadequate food, inadequate access to drinking water so that those of us attending had to purchase bottled water. We couldn't refill our bottles and then even the toilets overflowing. There were also complaints about some harassment activists. I met one activist who claimed that she had been harassed by the military during her stay. Very young uh, woman and uh, quite upset by the whole experience. But as you walked around this gigantic trade show, that's essentially what a cop is, uh, and visited different booths, it was clear that there is a world of the haves and the have-nots. And that issue increasingly became the topic of discussion during my time. Yeah. In cop terms, they call it loss and damage. That's one of the big things that comes up. And that is basically, again, who's suffered the losses and the damages and who's going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? But that's my sense of it. But there's, I'm sure, a much deeper sense of it. What do you really mean by that? What is really meant by that? And then 
for events like COP and, and others, are these effective? Do we have to have these? Do they solve problems? Give us your assessment, but first of all, explain loss and damage to us. Well, loss and damage has been a theme for many COPs now. It's brought forward by primarily developing nations who are ill-prepared for the impacts they are already suffering from climate change, be it sea level rise or increased flooding. They have said, uh, look, we need to have money for loss, like land, just simply underwater. That's a loss. Lives lost but also the damage to their economies from these increasingly violent extreme events that they just don't have the infrastructure like we have in richer nations, like in the United States. They don't have levees to prevent flooding. They don't have uh, the amounts of money to rebuild that the United States does. They are often saddled with debt. And when one of these events hit, there's little private insurance available. So those losses are absorbed by the governments and the population. So clamoring for more money has been a consistent theme at COPS. This time, for the first time ever, loss and damage actually made it onto the official agenda of COP27. And that meant it was going to be discussed in the negotiations. At COP26 last year in Glasgow, there was a similar attempt to get something final on loss and damage. But in the final moments before that gavel struck, closing COP26, the parties decided to kick this issue down the road. They created something called the Glasgow Dialogues that were supposed to last for three years talking about what kind of what a loss and damage, how this money fund would work. Interestingly, the developing countries have gathered together uh, and are speaking with one voice on this position. And now Pakistan has stepped forward. It leads a group of nations called the Group of 77. There are actually far more nations in this group that are pushing for loss and damages, reparations, whatever you want to call it for climate damage. And you'll recall that Pakistan is essentially now a poster child for what's at stake. Right, those devastating floods of the past year. Right. Pakistan is, because of its geography, one of the most climate-threatened nations in the world. It had a really hard year. 2022, uh, the spring started with an extreme heat wave. And of course, most of the country is not air-conditioned. Again, a difference between the rich world, certainly here in the United States. And so it very hard to have extended periods of very hot weather. And then the rains came, the monsoons changed and devastating flooding. Just imagine a third of the nation was underwater. 33 million people affected, 2 million homes lost, and then severe impacts to their infrastructure, 13,000 kilometers of road destroyed over 400 bridges. And Pakistan is largely an agricultural economy. It's one of the primary exporters of cotton. 40% of its cotton crop was destroyed and 15% of its rice crop destroyed. So they're facing significant hunger and malnutrition issues. And now in the fall planting season, there's a question whether their wheat crops will come in. 
As I walked around COP, Pakistan had its booth. They had been very articulate, their representative, insisting that there be money coming forward. At their booth, they borrowed from our saying in Las Vegas, and the booth has a huge poster board saying, what happens in Pakistan won't stay in Pakistan. So the harm that that country has suffered has become symbolic of what's ahead and the need for help. Going into COP27, I know you guys wrote on CFR that adaptation also going to be a key focus. And that's exactly what Pakistan and other nations are having to deal with. Now, Pakistan in the aftermath of all these disasters, but other countries facing similar threats, or even every country facing some threat or another has to deal with adaptation. What does that mean to the CFR? And did any of that come up in a meaningful way that looks like it might be addressed at COP27? I just want to say that my writing, I don't take an official position for CFR, but adaptation was a key issue and has been a key issue at this COP. It's still, with that said, struggles to get the limelight. Adaptation historically has been the poor cousin to efforts to cut harmful pollution. And of course, the reason we're trying to cut the harmful pollution is to contain the heating, which reduces the impacts, which means you don't have to adapt as much. But now with global average temperatures having risen 1.1 to 1.2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, we're seeing the impacts and adaptation is a critical need, again, particularly in these developing countries. And they have expressed their dismay that there is so little financing going to adaptation. Let's get to climate finance because that's a key part of these conversations. Ultimately, that's what we're talking about. It's also of special interest to our listeners, but this is all about who's going to pay for the prevention as well as investing for the future. And lots of promises have been made over time by various nations, even the private sector. We'll get into that in a second, but let's just talk about climate finance on the international front. Is it really happening? What is holding it back? I know everyone's worried about a recession now in 2023. Is that going to hurt it even more at a time where the problem just keeps getting worse? Well, the money has not been forthcoming. Uh, In the United States, one of our challenges is that we don't have agreement, particularly in Congress. We are deeply split between Republicans and Democrats, and it's hard to get the kind of funding uh, that's required. President Biden has put forward that he would like to start providing over $11 billion annually uh, to assist other countries. And this is in recognition of the fact that the United States has played a large role as the historically the largest emitter, as well as the current second largest emitter behind China. So it's played a large role in creating the climate crisis. Congress is unlikely to approve that $11 billion. And so President Biden at COP27 was limited to announcing small, much smaller amounts of funding that he could do through ordinary government functions. He didn't need a separate appropriation from Congress. Other countries have similarly uh, not come forward in the kinds of amounts that the developing world would wish for or state that they need. And private finance has been difficult to mobilize. Again, particularly in this adaptation space, it's just slow. 
One of many suggestions on ways to help that, there would be guarantees offered by government uh, for loans. There would be further support by governments to make de-risk investments by the private sector. We'll have to see if those occur. There is a separate problem as well that the IMF and the World Bank have been asked to work on, and that is that a lot of these nations are saddled with huge amounts of debt. And that increased under COVID-19, and it's become a big problem. So they want debt relief. Let's talk about the private sector investments group like GFANS. We love the acronyms here on The Green Investor, and, and this industry and this sector is so full of them. That's the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. That seems to, efforts there seem to have either stalled or fallen apart. We have some companies backing out or threatening to back out, but this doesn't happen. None of this money starts flowing. We don't get the kind of power we need without the private sector. How can those types of alliances be strengthened and empowered to really invest in real change? Well, certainly Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England and Canada, has done a lot to try to rope in the private sector. GFANS was announced at COP26, I think at that time, there were 130 companies. I can't recall the, the statistics, but a huge number of companies and more have been added. To your point, some have expressed concern because once they made that net zero commitment, they realized that there might be some accountability there. Uh, and they have backed off and said, particularly some large banks, said maybe we don't want to do this. And the issue there is these continued support for fossil fuels. Now, the International Energy Agency has said that we have to cut our relationships with fossil fuels to be able to achieve the kinds of gains we need in cutting our emissions to avoid the very worst of heating. So this is a tension point. And frankly, I think it's a tension point throughout the ESG and other efforts to have a taxonomy is what does this really mean? What do these promises mean? And how are companies going to be able to perform in a way that materially helps reduce the climate threat? In your writing and also on materials on the CFR's website, you're pretty good about naming the risks. And the risks are really obvious. Warming temperatures, rising sea levels, droughts, climate loss, biodiversity loss, going to get climate migration, climate refugees out there as well. The problems continue to matter. It only gets worse. But what does the CFR, what do you think is the most critical action developed nations can take right now to slow any of these trends? Well, unfortunately, it's not one action. It's a whole of society approach to getting to where we need to go. We can't take our foot off the accelerator on cutting our emissions. It's very frightening when you consider how hot we could get if we don't continually seek to reduce the pollution that's accumulating in the atmosphere. So that's very, very important. But we also need to elevate adaptation. We are at risk if we don't make adequate investments in adaptation. We are at risk of putting, threatening our efforts to cut emissions. Because as these events grow and harm the economy, harm the public health, and there's no insurance or other uh, monies available, the ability to make the transition to clean energy, to have a clean economy will be reduced. So we need to be able to do both at the same time. 
And that remains a challenge in the developing world, just as it remains a challenge in the developed world. We are way behind, and that includes the United States, in our efforts to prepare for these impacts that are already here, much less the ones that will be even more extreme in the near future. I know you've been focusing on this for a long time. You have a co-authored book, Building a Resilient Tomorrow. That was out in 2019. We will link to that in the show notes. But special thanks to you, Alice Hill, the David M. Rubenstein Senior Fellow for Energy and the Environment at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks for being on The Green Investor. Thank you. What a pleasure. It's time for Green Facts, that part of the show where we get to dig into dynamic facts, figures, and fascinating developments in the world of green investing. And this week, it's back to the future with the new Toyota Prius. Toyota took the wraps off its latest iteration of the Prius, the hybrid vehicle that paved the way for electric cars more than two decades ago. The fifth generation of the OG hybrid with bigger wheels and a sportier design offers three different hybrid powertrain options and will go on sale starting this winter. Pricing for the new model was not disclosed, although Toyota stressed it would be, quote, affordable for everybody, end quote. Toyota ushered in mass market hybrid vehicles with the debut of the Prius in 1997 and believes that the technology still has a pretty bright future. The new Prius will have a 1.8 liter or a 2.0 liter engine hybrid power option, which combines a combustion engine, electric motor, and battery to deliver better fuel economy and acceleration. There's also a 2.0 liter plug-in hybrid system that boosts power and range. Toyota has sold 4.75 million Priuses to date. For comparison, Tesla only just passed the 3 million vehicles sold mark for all of its vehicles. Prius sales peaked in 2010 when more than 500,000 units were sold worldwide, but that has come way down to around 86,000 Priuses sold last year. We're going to link to some pics of the new Prius, which kind of looks like the old one, but a little bit cooler. It's time to unpack the acronym, but we're going to throw a curveball and pitch a new term into our lexicon, and that term, which is new to me, is debt-for-nature swaps. The concept of debt-for-nature swaps was first introduced by Thomas Lovejoy, the vice president of the World Wildlife Fund, in 1984 in response to the deterioration of tropical rainforests and mounting debt obligations in developing countries, especially in Latin America. A debt-for-nature swap involves purchasing foreign debt, converting that debt into local currency, and using the proceeds to fund conservation activities. The key to the transaction lies in the willingness of commercial banks or governments to sell debt at less than the full value of the original loan. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why would any lending institution holding a promissory note for a million dollars, for example, be willing to part with it for just half that amount? The answer, according to Lovejoy, lies in the hard economic fact that many developing countries have not been able to repay their debts in full and may never be able to do so. As a result, commercial banks may prefer to sell debts at a discount rather than wait for an uncertain repayment in the future. And debt-for-nature swaps are pretty hot right now. Ecuador is in the process of trying to work out a debt-for-nature swap with the Galapagos Islands worth around $800 million, according to various reports. Cape Verde off West Africa is said to be close to a debt-for-nature swap that would be worth up to $200 million, according to the UN Economic Commission for Africa. And Sri Lanka has also been reportedly discussing a debt-for-nature swap of up to $1 billion. That would be the biggest ever. It's a pretty crafty financial solution to a very complicated problem, but time will tell if this deal achieves what really needs to be done. We'll go out this week as we always do, celebrating this week in environmental history. And this week we're celebrating World Fisheries Day, celebrated every year on November 21st. World Fisheries Day was established in 1998 and highlights the critical importance to human lives of water and the lives it sustains both in and out of the water. A recent United Nations study reported that more than two-thirds of the world's fisheries have been overfished or are fully harvested, and more than one-third are in a state of decline because of factors such as the loss of essential fish habitats, pollution, and global warming. 
Happy World Fisheries Day, and you can celebrate it by knowing the source of your fish and making sure you're buying it from sustainable sources. Thanks for joining us this week on The Green Investor, and special thanks to Alice Hill from the Council of Foreign Relations for joining us upon her return from COP27. We'll link to reports from COP27 and all the reports we cited on today's episode. You'll find those in the show notes wherever you listen to this program and on investopedia.com slash the Green Investor Podcast, sending you and your family's gratitude this holiday season. And until we meet again, keep it green. <laughs>